Last time I checked, which was yesterday, there were around 137,000 deaths from COVID-19 in this country and over 560,000 in the world. I'm sure that's changed since then. And in relaying these statistics, I say around those numbers, but I'm keenly aware that this casual word denoting an approximation does not do justice to each individual's death and the pain and loss experienced by families and friends and communities. We are surrounded by death as we always are in reality, but we are face to face with it through the ongoing spread of this virus in unique and frightening ways, thinking of those who may have died needlessly because of a tragically uneven response from those in power and what appears to be a callous disregard for those who are suffering. I think of the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah hearing the voice of God saying of the leaders of the time, they have treated the wounds of my people carelessly. Indeed, they have. And in this climate, feeling the inherent fragility of life and reminded once again that all lives end, it is natural that there may be an intensification of wondering about what comes after this life. Many religions have been popularly associated with and often identified by their visions of what happens after we die. Religion itself, some say, arises out of a need to create meaning, purpose, and hope out of a life that we deep down know that we have ingenious ways of hiding from this truth, but that we deep down know will end. We will die. Knowing that we will die leads to the question, how then shall we live? How should we spend the time that we have? But it also leads to a follow-up question, is death really the end? It appears to be the end of this life, but what happens after the end? Humans don't do that well with endings. Whether coming to the end of a full and beautiful life or coming to an unexpected, abrupt end of a life that was challenging and difficult, we can imagine ourselves asking in the words of the famous Peggy Lee song, is that all there is? So let me state this up front, though I dare say it will not come as a surprise. I don't know what happens after we die. As much as you may have already guessed that, it's not easy for me to say. I'm a minister, for goodness sake, and I would like to speak to those who are nearing death or those who have experienced the death of a loved one with some authority, some confidence, some clear idea of what follows this existence. After all, one of the things that ministers offered as I was growing up in the Lutheran Church was the assurance that death has been vanquished, that a life awaits us after this life, that that life will be eternal, and we will be, if we are among the fortunate or the chosen or the faithful, in the presence of the Most Holy. 
and this belief in life after death was not treated as a minor addendum to religious doctrine. It was and is oftentimes central, vital, of paramount importance. The Apostle Paul, never one to mince words, <laughs> wrote this in his first letter to the Corinthians, not to be confused with two Corinthians. I'm sorry, I just had to slip that in. If you don't know the reference, don't worry about it. His first letter to the Corinthians, he wrote, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If for this life only we have hoped. That's pretty clear. The great Norwegian composer and pianist Edvard Grieg said this about religion. You can have all the dogmas, but the belief in immortality I must have. Without that, everything comes to nothing. Alas, in my experience with Lutheranism, in which Grieg was raised too, beliefs were not offered a la carte. <laughs> However, it is interesting to follow beliefs, beliefs that seem to be set in stone to where they originated. When Grieg said he must hold on to a belief in immortality, what was he picturing exactly? Because immortality alone is not very descriptive. Was he picturing heaven? And what had he been taught to believe about heaven? And where did those beliefs about heaven come from? I remember feeling a lot of confusion growing up about how this whole life after death thing worked. I read in the New Testament that the dead would rise when Christ returned. However, I heard at funerals of relatives that the deceased had gone to be with the Lord. Already, I thought, did they have a special pass? And not only did they get to heaven immediately, apparently other people were already there. I remember one funeral where a cousin pictured my now-dead aunt making lefsa with my grandmother in heaven, and everyone nodded their heads. They too seemed to be convinced of that vision. Could that be, I thought? What happened to the last judgment that comes at the end of time? Were they prejudged? Were they in some sort of heavenly holding cell with a kitchen, I might add, awaiting trial? Or did God judge people one at a time as they died? My goodness, that alone would keep him busy. How would he ever have time to bother with the living? And was this picture of heaven as an eternity, eternal family reunion? Was that actually biblical? Not to mention the question of, is an eternal family reunion really heaven? Listen to this from an essay in the New York Times book review from April 22nd, 2011. But it's talking about a book from 1868. 
Listen to this. In 1868, Elizabeth Stuart Phelps published The Gates Ajar, a novel about a young woman named Mary Cabot, whose brother Roy was killed in the Civil War. The bereaved Mary knows that she is supposed to be consoled by her Calvinist faith, personified by a minister with the unsubtle name Bland. But she finds her church's teachings about the afterlife cold comfort. She does not like picturing her brother single-mindedly adoring God. Mary thinks this sounds dull, and she is horrified by the thought that Roy, in his rapturous concentration on God's splendor, might forget her, his beloved sister. Through the ministrations of a widowed aunt, Mary ultimately adopts a new vision of heaven, one in which people's primary end is not union with God, but being reunited with loved ones. Now listen, some condemned the gates ajar as heretical. As the New York Times reported, bookstore customers who dared to ask for the novel, quote, would doubtless be regarded as fully as dangerous a person as some think the gentle author herself. But the criticism didn't hurt sales. Just a few weeks after the book's relief, release, Phelps Publisher sent her a check for $600 and a note informing her, your book is moving grandly. It has already reached a sale of 4,000 copies. But here's the point. That vision that heaven was a place where we are reunited with loved ones was heretical in 1868? Yes. It turns out that though 72% of all Americans agree, this is present day, agree that there is a literal heaven where people go when they die and 58% believe in an actual literal hell. And if asked, most of these people would probably say they believe these things because that's what it says in the Bible. It turns out that these views, according to New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman, as expressed in his most recent book, Heaven and Hell. These views do not go back to the earliest stages of Christianity. They cannot be found in the Hebrew scriptures, and they are not what Jesus himself taught, he writes. So, am I trying to convince you not to believe what have become the traditional beliefs about heaven? No. Am I trying to convince you to embrace some other beliefs? No, but I am saying that the explicit agnosticism of Unitarian Universalism about the afterlife, the forthright I don't knowness that we are sometimes sheepish about because other faith traditions seem so certain, that is actually only unique in that it is explicit. Ehrman writes, neither ancient Christianity nor the Judaism it was built on, let alone the other religions in their immediate context, had a single solitary view of the afterlife. Both religions and all the religions at the time were remarkably diverse in their views. The ideas of heaven and hell were invented and have been altered over the years. Exhibit 1, the reuniting of family members in the afterlife, considered heretical as late as 1868, is widely understood now as biblical 
Orthodox accepted in today's Christian culture, very generally speaking. And you hear it referred to often in popular culture. But outside of an academic, scholarly, possibly disheartening analysis, what does this mean for us? Here's what I want to say. The place of not knowing feels like a place where I can learn something. The diversity of views on the afterlife feels like a place where I can consider the hopes and fears that I and we humans project into the afterlife. I was struck by this passage from that book review. She does not like picturing her brother single-mindedly adoring God. Mary thinks this sounds dull, and she is horrified by the thought that Roy, in his rapturous concentration on God's splendor, might forget her, his beloved sister. Though through the ministrations of a widowed aunt, Mary ultimately adopts a new vision of heaven, one in which people's primary end is not union with God, but being reunited with loved ones. I love that. Enough of this adoration of God already. I am your sister. And I have to say, though, it seems like being in the presence of God would be the big draw in heaven. It seemed to me in my religious upbringing that people were much more excited about reuniting with loved ones. I get that. Presence of God has sort of an ethereal, abstract attraction. But I know, I know that I would love to see my parents again, my mother-in-law, my friend, Michael, my nephew, Harry. I would love to imagine that our stillborn daughter, Emma, has somehow grown now into a child, a young woman, an adult after all these years, and that I could get to know her. I get that yearning. And that says something, doesn't it? About how important we are to one another. Calling us perhaps to deepen connections in the here and now. And I get that I come to these afterlife speculations generally from a place of privilege and comfort. I get that some people's lives are filled with suffering in this existence because life is decidedly not fair and that a vision of a better world beyond this life can serve as a powerfully sustaining hope. And I get that when greed and arrogance and callousness seem to prosper in this world, that the vision of a judgment in the hereafter where people are held accountable can be a compelling an attractive vision of a just universe. It is a natural human desire to want to pierce that mystery of what happens after the end, to imagine a place where this life is seen in a clearer focus than we have managed to attain while we live it, to hope for a place where wrongs are righted, where questions are answered, where those who deserve comfort are comforted, and where those who cause pain are held accountable for their actions. The desire for certainty about a life after we die is understandable. 
and sometimes I take comfort in the vision offered up by Epicurus. So death, the most frightening of bad things, is nothing to us, since when we exist, death is not present, and when death is present, then we do not exist. But the not knowing ideally keeps us humble. And we can ask questions about how whatever beliefs we hold about the afterlife affect how we are living this life. Are our beliefs, in the words of Sophia Lyon Fawes, like walled gardens, encouraging exclusiveness and the feeling of being especially privileged? Or are they expansive, leading the way into wider and deeper sympathies? Though Edvard Grieg at one time claimed that a belief in immortality was absolutely necessary, he also said this in later years after becoming a Unitarian. Whether one believes in God, Satan, Christ, along with the Holy Ghost and the Virgin Mary, in Muhammad or in nothing, it is still the case that the mystery of death cannot be explained away. The mystery of death cannot be explained away. It does not disappear with all of our stories about what comes next. It does not disappear under the bright light of our fondest hopes. It does not disappear with the assurances of Scripture nor the passionate proclamations of ministers. The mystery remains. The mystery borders our lives on either side. Birth, life, death. Unknown, known, unknown. Our destiny from unknown to unknown. May we have the faith to accept this mystery. <laughs>